Now, Brother Bill got excited, didn't he? I don't know if I've ever heard you get that excited, Brother Bill. That was awesome. Don't you love spontaneity when the Lord touches your heart? Music is designed to move your affections in praise to the Lord. What God has put in your mind in the teaching of the Word drops into your affections. And if you want to shout, just shout for the glory of the Lord. And sometimes you just feel that welling up inside. And uh, the Bible talks about that. If we don't praise Him, He'll have the very rocks cry out in His name. Don't let Him take your place, right? Shout out for the Lord. There is no doubt about the fact that the book of Acts sets before us a big picture of the gospel. Not something small or weak or anemic, but a big picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not... Just some nice, sweet, mellow, heartwarming message, which is like adding a little caffeine or spice to your life to get you going. The Bible presents the gospel like a freight train that collides with the world, with religion, and with the powers of darkness. And if you're saved today, it actually was like a freight train when it collided with you. In your mind, in your heart, in your will, in your emotion, in your affections, in your volitional will... It collides with us, and the Bible makes that clear. It causes us to ask the question, when you see the gospel penetrating city after city and culture after culture and community after community in the book of Acts, we have to stop long enough to ask the Lord the question, Father, what would our community look like if you should unleash the gospel in all of its power? Don't you long for that? I mean, not just ho-hum, ho-drum, whatever, just life as usual, a little gospel to spice us up, but just the Lord unleashing the power of the gospel in our community, not just in Ephesus, but in our community. Now, we are in to a second part, well, really the third part of the gospel hitting the city of Ephesus. And so today I want to take some time to do something I haven't done to this point. And that is give you a little background of Ephesus. Because in the progression of the gospel, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, when you read Ephesus and what God is doing in Ephesus, in Acts 19 and 20, or 19 primarily, then you are witnessing the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the progression in the book of Acts. So it's a strategic development when the gospel hits Ephesus. And when I just read the text, you're like, well, what's the big deal about Artemis? And what's the big deal about uh, people getting ticked off about uh, their money being taken away from them? And what's going on here? Well, what really is going on is that as Jesus is exalted, people are worshiping Him instead of idols. And so there's a major shift going on. In other words, when Jesus comes in power, it, it upsets social order. Everything gets turned upside down. We see that in, John, in Acts 17 when uh, they say, these men are here turning the world upside down. They're, they're causing no small trouble when it comes to the gospel. And even there in verse 23, we're going to read in a few moments, that there arose no little disturbance. What's that mean? Well, the Greek word is a tumult. No little disturbance means big disturbance. Because the gospel has been... Preach. So let's read our passage together today. It's kind of lengthy. We're reading from Acts 19. Y'all got anywhere to go? 
I mean, there's kind of icy outside. You got here, and there's no reason why I should not keep you here for a little while. Now, Acts 19, beginning in verse 21, we'll read through the entire rest of the chapter. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and to Achaia and to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. That's kind of a travel log. That's kind of Paul's ambition, God-given, I may say, to him. And that's what he's going to do. But before that happens, something ensues. Look at verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That's some pretty good preaching, isn't it? To say that. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together. And the the into the theater, it's actually an amphitheater that would seat 24,000 people, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembling, assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. That, that is notorious. That's the epitome of a Baptist business meeting, correct? <laughs> we come together and we don't know why we're coming. Anyway, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice. Here's a worship service to a false god. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is... it?" Know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him with him have complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. 
And when he had said these things, he dismissed the, you know what that word is in the Greek? Ekklesia, which means assembly. He released this particular assembly that was not the assembly ecclesia of the church, but assembly of uh, unbelievers for the most part. All right, now, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to give you a little history lesson about Ephesus on this icy day to warm your spirit, right? We're going to talk about a little history of Ephesus, and then I want to move you in really into the fifth point of last week's sermon. Kind of cool, right? We'll, we'll slide in that fifth point and see how the gospel of Jesus Christ upsets the social order. I'll walk you through the narrative, and we'll be done for this morning. So, Ephesus, what do we know about it? It was a commercial and cultural epicenter in Asia Minor. Thriving city located on the west coast of Asia Minor. It was ranked with Rome and Alexandria as a Roman city. So if you're going to put those together, you've got Rome, Alexandria, and Ephesus. Those three were most pivotal, most important in that area. So it had mythological beginnings. Did y'all note that? Something fell down from heaven, right? So it's got a mythological beginning, and the idea is it was founded by Amazons. Now be careful. These are giant women. Seriously. That's what this means. These were giant female warriors who came. So the mythology impacted their culture. It impacted their religion. So Ephesus was, in the first century, a very feminized society. It really was. For first century, incredible amount of feminization. As Rome, as a Roman city, it prospered for over 200 years. Most estimate that over a quarter of a million people inhabited Ephesus. Now, I think 160,000 people live in Springfield, and we would say that's a pretty good-sized area. Just think about 200,000 people in the first century in a city. Huge. It would have been an enormous city at this particular time. It was ranked third in population in the entire Roman Empire. It also functioned as the capital of the Asian province. So... With communication and transportation as a hub in Asia Minor, it was strategic in the imperial period. Whereas we would say that all roads lead to, we would say all roads come, all roads leave, uh, actually come out of Ephesus. It was that much of a cultural center. Now remember, Paul strategically goes into this area to plant the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to have a launching pad for worldwide evangelization. So it was also culturally advanced. Again, it had this amphitheater that remains to this day. And in its heyday, again, it would seat 24,000 people. Now that's a big place, right? It is. It's huge. But it also had a center for medical training. And some of the most famous physicians of the ancient world came out of this medical practice or uh, medical training facility. It was also famous for uh, gymnasiums. It held what was called the Common Games of Asia. This ranked right up there with the Olympian Games. <clears throat> it was also called the Metropolis of Asia. And the thing that marks it out for our interest today was the religious center of its day. It was. Just like with Rome, it had a, a pantheon of gods. Tons and tons of them. However, 
It was different than a Roman city usually because it had a, a specific chief religion in Ephesus that no one else had. And it was the worship of Artemis. And of course, Artemis is the Greek name. The Roman name is Diana. So you've done your homework. And we see there that the Artemis cult was the predominant cult in that city. And indeed, it became one of the most popular cults in all of Asia Minor. Now, the statue of Artemis, which was incredible in and of itself, was housed in the temple of Artemis. And this temple was the largest structure in the ancient world. It was 220 feet by 425 feet. It had 127 marble columns outlined the outside, and all of them were 60 feet high. And everything inside of that temple was made out of marble. Can you imagine seeing this? It was identified as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Needless to say, the Ephesian people were proud people. They had one word on the temple of Artemis. Guess what it was? Ephesus. We know that uh, the third time it was built, that Alexander the Great wanted to chip in to build it so that he could have his name on the temple. And they said thanks, but no thanks. They were very proud people, so they built it themselves. Bruce Mexker, a New Testament scholar who's gone to be with the Lord, once said, of all the ancient Greco-Roman cities, Ephesus was by far the most hospitable to magicians, sorcerers, and charlatans of all sorts. They sold something called the Ephesian Letters, which was a little small book of spells and incantations that could be written on amulets and charms. It's supposed to give you protection over evil spirits. And the books were expensive and they sold them by the thousands. The temple area and court grew uh, so wealthy that it became the main financial institution of Asia. Not only did it receive deposits, but it also made loans. Wow, right there at the temple. Clearly, Artemis and the god of money were tied together in Ephesus. Well, in the midst of all of this, there was a little synagogue. Remember that? We read about it last week. But it wasn't an orthodox synagogue. Because archaeological findings have revealed to us that even Jewish inscriptions were on these amulets and charms. You know what that means? That means that those at the local synagogue were also syncretist. You remember that's an amalgamation of thought and culture and religion all wound up into one. In other words, you get a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Buddha and much like our world, right? A little bit of New Ageism and bring them all together, amalgamate them and just believe everything. So even in the Jewish synagogue that was present there, they probably dabbled into uh, magical things and the occult. But I want to remind you that this was the city and what was going on when the gospel comes through like a freight train. That's the area. That, and you look at that and you say, that's impenetrable. But it looks like New York City. Or it looks like uh, Las Vegas. Or it looks like Los Angeles. I'm telling you folks, nothing can withstand the power of the gospel. Nothing. Not any civilization. Not any social order. When the gospel comes in, you cannot remain indifferent. It's going to cause trouble. It's going to either save souls or it's going to be an aroma of death to death for those who don't trust Christ. It's going to cause this. So I'll tell you all this to remind you that Paul was there preaching in Tyrannus. How long? Two years. 
We know he was in the synagogue three years, boldly preaching Jesus Christ. He wasn't coming in and doing friendly dialogue. He was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we know from Acts chapter 20 that, Jesus, uh, that Paul was actually there for three years in all. He poured his life into this culture. And for three years he preached the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, remember in response to the streaking sons of Stephen? Y'all remember that story last week when the demons jump on the sons of Sceva and they streak out naked? Because the demons have no, they know who Jesus is. They know who Paul is, but they have no idea who the seven sons of Sceva are. You know what happened though? Jesus was exalted, magnified in that community and exalted. And what happened? Believers began to rid themselves of past things and they probably burned their uh, books, their, their, one on, their, one on, their 101 book or theories, incantations for dummies. They burned those books and they burned everything that had an association with evil practices. And according, again, in verses 21 and 22, just quickly, Paul is telling us what his plans are. He wants to go through Macedonia and through Jerusalem. Do y'all know he's backtracking, right? Why would Paul want to go in reverse? Why would he turn around and go backwards? Because not only did he have a heart to want to get to Rome, why did he want to go to Rome? Because the gospel had not been preached in Rome. Why do we have this couple in India? We want the gospel preached in the area they're in in India, right? Why do we send missionaries to unreached people groups? Because we want them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We didn't just make this up. It's not wafted out of the atmosphere. It's what the Bible teaches. And so Paul is wanting to get to Rome, but, but he also has a pastor's heart. And not only does he want the gospel to go to Rome, but he wants all the churches that had been planted and started, he wants to go back to them and disciple those churches so that they're strong in the faith. And that's what your church needs to be doing, right? That's what our church is called to do. The pastor is here to open up the Word on Sunday, and this is where we have our huddle, for lack of a better way of saying it. We huddle up here and we get, we get encouraged and we learn the Word of God so that we can go out in the community and run the plays, right? And so Paul is going back and he's making sure that these churches are strong. But before he can do it, he's got his plans to leave. What happens? Well, the same thing that happens in our lives. We mark, we, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, we make our plans, but God directs our paths. God has another plan at this point and the Bible teaches us that chaos ensues in Ephesus. Remember the four points from last week? I'm looking. Oh, yeah. The word of the Lord increases and prevails. The power of the gospel is displayed. Jesus Christ is magnified. Believers confess and renounce sins. You know what that's called? Those four things, revival. And we talked about that. God, that is a great awakening that our church needs. And we work through that. And here's the final point of that sermon today. The advancement of the gospel upsets the entire social order. And that's exactly what takes place. The gospel upsets order. It always brings trouble. Not, we're not trying to be troublemakers. It's just that when the gospel is preached in clarity, given from the word, it's going to upset our society. So quickly, when Paul's gospel-centered, Jesus-exalting, spirit-empowered ministry hits Ephesus it impacts the local economy, and it causes an uproar. Again, it's a big disturbance that takes place, and the city is in an uproar, and it begins to be spearheaded by one named Demetrius, a silversmith. You ever been to a Tanger Outlet Mall? Is that the name of the one in Branson? Yeah, I thought so. 
Well, Demetrius the silversmith had the first gift shops for the spirit of Ephesus. Now, I'm just kind of be. I don't know if you women would have wanted to go to that outlet, but that's exactly what's going on in the text. He's got his gift shops, and he was selling little temple replicas. You know, you got the big temple of Artemis. You narrow that thing down, and you make it out of silver, and you've got a little silver temple replica. And here's the skinny of it. The dude was making a lot of money. Tons and tons. So, could you imagine? Some of your family, they're going out to visit Ephesus and walk the city on that day. And you say, hey, while you're down there in Ephesus, why don't you pick me up one of those temple replicas? So I can hang it on my Christmas tree. Now, that's a little early, right? No one, uh, Constantine had not established that at this point. But still, you had your little figurine or your amulet or your charm. And this was what was going on. The point being, Demetrius made tons of money off silver shrines of Artemis. In verse 25, he gathers everyone together and he says this. Y'all ready? It's the economy. It's the economy. Y'all don't watch the news, right? That's really what he says, right? I mean, the gospel, it's, it's upsetting, uh, the economic structure in Ephesus. They're not really concerned that, that they feel like this is heretical or it's, gonna, it's, it's uh, something contrary to their religious orientation. They're concerned about finances. Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. So he's working these people up. Their livelihood depends upon it. They've got bogus little temples that they're giving to everyone. And their response is, this dude, Paul, is ruining our economy. We're feeling the effects of it. Our sales are down. And the whole area is going to be affected by this. And by all means, you know what he's saying? He's saying that all these temples made by hands, they're false. Well, Jesus did say that, right? I will not dwell in temples made by hands. You know where the temple of the Holy Spirit is? Right inside of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And furthermore... They thought, that Jesus, they thought that their God could be contained to a temple. And we know Solomon said, Lord, we're going to build this temple, but it cannot contain you. And we know that Stephen's preaching in Acts chapter 7 is about sacred space. And he tells them, here's sacred space. It's wherever our God is. He's everywhere, right? He, he's not bound by a temple. You cannot contain him. So Artemis is going to be put to shame, right? That's what the text says if this keeps going and guess what happens if Artemis is put to shame the whole world is going to suffer because we lose her greatness now check this out listen to her resume this is what they believed about Artemis she was the virgin who helped women in childbirth she was the huntress who carried with her a bow and an arrow she was the fertility goddess with her multiple breasts and she was the goddess of death man that's quite a resume can you think for a moment the amount of money tied around different occultic type things surrounded by birth and by death where people could make money hand over fist about this. There was actually a week-long festival in the spring. <laughs> David and I talked about this before coming in. It was called a Burning Man Festival in honor of the female Artemis. Folks, there's nothing new under the sun, right? All you got to do is watch TV to figure out there's a burning Male, uh, there's a burning man epidemic in our country. 
is to feminize you and make you into something that God never intended for you to be. God intended for you to be a man, if you're a man. He intended for you to be the spiritual leader of your home. He intended for you uh, to be a physical man. There's nothing wrong with being a man. But what is it? You done got lulled into sleep too? You ought to say amen. But we're talking about God's kind of men. We're talking about men who love Jesus more than self. We know that. But even in this day, this was going on. And we have to say there's nothing new under the sun, for sure. So in verse 28, the mob is stirred up. They're filled with rage because they could actually, this could actually happen to them. We could lose our wealth. And again, uh, their culture, their heritage, their religion, and most importantly, their economic foundation could go away, could be swept away. So they start chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And in verse 29, there is a, it, it becomes violent protest, becomes worse and worse. It's violent mob, uh, mob violence. And they're ushering down toward the temple assembly. And as they make their way, the Bible says they drag in a couple of Paul's traveling companions. And it escalates. And Paul gets the word. Probably runs down to the temple. Why? He wants to go in. And we look at that and we're like, whoa, that's probably not a good idea. But Paul, no, no doubt about it, here's what Paul saw. He wasn't going in trying to be a troublemaker. He was going in to try to bring some sanity and for sure, he was going to try to use that opportunity in that amphitheater to preach Jesus. And we know Paul was going to do this. But the fact of the matter is, we get to take a little glimpse into Paul's character. Here's a man who'll come running right in there with the power of the gospel. Not afraid for his life, is he? And he would go right in that mob and preach the word. His brothers say, nope, it's not going to happen today. They try to keep Paul out. And even some of the Asiarchs who were impacted by Paul tried to persuade them against going. You ever seen that word before? Asia arcs? That's interesting, isn't it? You know what liberal scholars said years and years ago? That group did not even exist. So that proves that Luke did not know his history. Therefore, that proves that the Bible is not true. Guess what happens? About 90 years later after they said this, it was discovered in historical archaeological findings that this word was actually a technical term used for Ephesus and other Asian cities in reference to what they would call city fathers. Guess what? The Word of God got it right again. Amen. And how many times have we seen this happen over and over again? So the Jews take a guy named Alexander and they push him forward, but the crowd realizes that he is a Jew, and I don't know what their thinkings were, association, Paul being a Jew, Alexander being a Jew, but the fact of the matter is they would not give him voice at all. And then the Bible says, in the midst of all this confusion, when some people did not even know why they were there and what was going on, they actually have someone come forward. We might call him an unlikely hero, and the Bible calls him a town clerk. But don't fool yourself, this was a pretty high, uh, high official. As a matter of fact, he was the highest civic official in the city. He's the city registrar. He kept all the records, he took care of temple funds, and he would have been responsible for so many things. And you know what? God, it's awesome how God does things, but he's probably the only one at that moment people would have listened to. And God gives him a little bit of sound mind and judgment. Just think about this for a moment. He uses an unbeliever, an Artemis worshiper, to calm down the crowd. You know, if God can use Balaam's donkey, if he can use... Cyrus and an edict in the, in the Old Testament 
to get things accomplished, if he can call a census to get all of Rome to go back to their hometowns in order to have Jesus be born in Bethlehem, I'm telling you folks, our God controls all things. And here he is, he raises up this one who comes and he speaks and he's a calm person. His speech kind of reminds me of Gamaliel's back in Acts chapter 5. And I think God is demonstrating common grace at this point so that the little church in Ephesus will not be destroyed. That it will still have its tentacles and spider principle out in the community. And so God uses an unconverted Diana-worshipping man to bring sanity. And his argument is simple. Who in the world is going to challenge Diana? Who's going to really challenge Artemis? The whole known world knows that mythologically, he didn't say that, but whatever fell down from heaven started her out and Artemis is the greatest one and nothing's going to happen. And basically he says calm heads must prevail. If we're not careful, we're going to cause a riot and we're going to get thrown into jail. I want to remind you folks here at the end that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to shake things up. And that is what you see in this text. When the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth, Satan's structures do not stand. It's the truth of the gospel. When the gospel goes forth in power, God changes lives. Cultures change. Strongholds are cast down. I know Brother Philip would have studied this. The Wells Revival. Most people in seminary, Joel, most people that have gone to seminary have studied the revival that hit the country of Wales in 1904. God poured out His Spirit in the country of Wales in such an incredible way. The gospel was preached throughout the entire area of Wales and, and almost every saloon in the area shut down. Nobody wanted to get drunk anymore. When, when the gospel comes in power, change, it changes culture. Topples Satan's kingdoms. They also say about Wales one interesting thing that's documented. Your people who worked in the mines had mules. David's shaking his head. He knows about this. And the mules were so used to being cussed at to do their job. Once Jesus came to town and some of the miners started getting saved, they changed their vocabulary and the mules did not even know how to respond. That's revival, right? And, you know, it was a ship harbor place too and the sailors were rough. But all of a sudden they talked about the fact that you felt like you could cut the spirit with a knife or an axe. As they got off onto the seashore, they felt something's different in this place because Jesus was being exalted. Notice the text doesn't say that Paul started a campaign to end Artemis worship. Right? He didn't start a political campaign to undercut the Artemis industry. Now, I'm sure the false god worship agitated Paul. Do you remember when he walked through Athens and he was just grieved in his spirit? At false god worship. Because folks, here's the deal. There are no other gods. There is one God. Our God. And so, did it bother him that, that they were praying off of people's gullibil religious gullibility and making money? I guarantee you it did bother Paul. But he did not become first a political activist. What did Paul do in the society he was living in? He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was through the faithful preaching of the gospel... That our God changed lives then, and it's the way that God changes lives today. The culture war was not changed through politicians. The culture war was won in the arena of worldviews. 
There's a major difference between a Christian worldview and any other worldview. And that's where the war was waged. In Ephesus, the gospel triumphs not because of political processes. The gospel triumphs through change of thought and heart. There was an old short story narrative written years ago called Earth's Holocaust. And in this book, at one point, it's depicted that everybody's trying to rid themselves of societal evils. So it's kind of like Acts in a way. They're, they're, they're throwing things into the fire. they got a giant bonfire, and they're throwing in their guns and their books and everything else that they think is keeping them, uh, the society, from being what it ought to be. But one gentleman in the book stands up and says, there still yet remains one thing to be thrown into the fire, and unless that's thrown into the fire, everything we've placed in it is going to come back to us. And he said, that one thing is the human heart. Isn't that so true? And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change us. So the truth of the gospel collided like a freight train with the false religion of Artemis. Milton once said, Let truth and falsehood grapple, for whoever knew truth to be put to the worse in a free and open exchange. Right? We know the power of the truth of the gospel. It turns things upside down. And I would submit to you that the riot was a scary thing. But it was also evidence that the kingdom of Christ had come to Ephesus. The power of the gospel. And we must remember that our primary weapon is not the political processes. Are you all listening? Our primary weapon is not the political processes. Should we be involved with political processes? Well, if that's what God calls you to do, go after it. Right? What grieves my heart more in our world is the lack of the stand that believers have. And when there's moral things that we know are clear in the Bible and ethical things we know are clear, they just kind of move away from that in an effort to accommodate the message to people. I'm going to tell you folks, the gospel is not an accommodating message. You cannot accommodate the gospel to people. You can't make people comfortable in hearing the gospel. As a matter of fact, you'll either stumble over the gospel and be saved or you'll stumble into hell. There's no other way around it. And so, here, we, should we be involved? Yes. Do we want the right people in office? Well, of course we do. But the primary way to see society changed is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the business of this church. It's to preach the gospel. It's to be proclaimed with confidence. I have way more confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ stopping abortion in our country than any political figure we can ever put in the office. Because the gospel can change a heart. The gospel can change the woman's heart who has the intent within her to kill her baby. God can change her heart. Right? It's only the gospel that can change. It's the gospel that changes culture. It is the gospel that wins the culture wars. Would it not be awesome if the drug dealers in Ozark, Missouri... I'd like to go slap every one of them. And I would. That's just, it's deep down in you. You just, right? You just, I mean, it's inside of you. You want to do that. But I'd rather the gospel slap them. Right? That's what we need. So all of them are put out of business. All the dope sellers, drug pushers, fentanyl pushers. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can change that heart. We certainly want justice taking place on the civil level. But it's the power of the gospel that changes lives. Wouldn't it be awesome if the gospel was preached with so much clarity in our community that all the brothels, saloons, 
clubs and everything else just shut down. Just put them slam out of business. They'd be just like Demetrius the silversmith saying, man, this Paul's turning our society upside down. And we just say glory to God. Would it not be awesome for husbands to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and get saved and all of a sudden, man, that's the best way for a woman to get a new husband. Amen? It's not to go after somebody else's or get rid of yours. The best way to get a new husband is to introduce that rascal to Jesus. And then you've got a changed husband. You've got a new one. Because old things are passed away, behold, all things become new. This is what the gospel can do. Acts is about what the gospel can do when it's faithfully proclaimed. And our primary business should be the preaching, the living, and the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never underestimate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's keep exalting Jesus in our city, and you'll see people start casting down idols. Amen? That's the story of Ephesus. Next week, we'll plow in to chapter 20. I'm excited about studying it. I'm doing like you. I'm studying it new and fresh every week. Right? So study with me. Go ahead and start reading in chapter 20. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love for us. God, thank you for speaking through your word. And Lord, just to remind this congregation and people who are here that there is no salvation apart from Jesus. can't get it through Artemis or Buddha or through Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses. There's only one gospel. There's only one good news. Furthermore, there's only one spell that's woven into the hearts of men to save them. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that you weave in our hearts. And it's exclusive. Your word says, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will ever come to the Father except through me. There's no entrance to heaven apart from Jesus. There's no entrance apart from having our sins forgiven, being justified, made alive by Jesus, being reconciled to our God. Father, we know how a holy God can forgive sin and still remain holy. And that's because you sent the Holy One, Jesus Christ, to take our place. Pay a penalty we could never pay. Pay a debt that we could never pay. We owed a debt we could never pay. But Jesus Christ paid the debt that we owe. We thank you for it, Father. And for Christians, God, give us confidence in the gospel. For family members where it seems there's no hope, there's no end to drug abuse and addictions and no end to unfaithfulness in marriage and, and no end to the things that we face in family life and around the world, we know that Jesus Christ is the answer. That the gospel can change anyone with His power. And Father, we thank You for the gospel. Father, take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Save souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.